Singe, singe, zinga. You're listening to Zinga Network at zinganetwork.com. Two years ago, around this same time, I set off on a quest. I feel like I'm always starting quests, and they just overlap and overlap and overlap. So maybe it was two years ago, maybe ten, maybe it was yesterday. Nevertheless, this quest brought me to a new part of Berlin, where I met a man who pulled out pieces of the past to sell, and hid them from himself again if no one was buying. I had an empty space to fill, and my quest was to fill it. I bought something from the man that, I realize now in retrospect, is by its very nature designed to be an empty space. An industrial shop cart from the 1950s, sturdy and wide and meant to simply cart stuff around the Ministerium für Staatssicherheit at Frankfurt Oder, or at least that's where the man told me it was from. Dear Lulu. Now it just supports an old DDR typewriter I never use, candles I rarely light, and bottles of liquor I never drink. Traditional fuel for quests, but mine sit untouched on the bottom tier of my Stasi wagon. Maybe that last quest was the last quest I've embarked on. Dear Lulu. Anyway, when I finally got my Stasi wagon home, I felt proud, accomplished. Quest completed. I would have applauded myself, but. What's the sound of one person clapping? Welcome to Artipus, art you can hear. Artipus visits Lula McDonald's exhibition, Lower Than a Snake's Belly, at A Plus Gallery in Berlin. Turns out, that's not how quests really work. Also, I was going in the wrong direction the whole time. Dear Lulu, just as I sat down to write this letter to you, a very flat being flew by my window. The other day, I was on my way home from visiting with an artist friend. We had talked about caterpillars and voodoo and vulnerability, the magic hour between what was and what will be. A beautiful brimstone butterfly. I've been working on a poem for a poetry slam about the same thing, the dangers of finding love in this moment, about hesitation, about being still, about waiting and knowing when it's the right moment to move. Butterflies were on my mind when I turned onto my own street. And a butterfly was on my street, a giant butterfly, as big as an 11-year-old girl and as purple as grapes, was being wheeled into the A Plus gallery in my building complex for an exhibition opening that night. Of course, I had to go. On this night, just like two summers ago when I set out on my quest, it was warm. But now, two years later, the air is heavy with global warming, with bad politics, with end times anxiety, with extinction. But it's still a summer night, so everyone was outside. I entered the gallery through the back door, as I often do, 
privilege of neighbors. Gallery assistant Rosmus tried to interest me in some Italian sparkling water or wine, neither of which would fuel my quest to see this butterfly from the afternoon. So instead, I walked into the gallery space empty-handed and found myself there, alone. I can wholly understand your fascination with butterflies. They are peculiar beings. And this, I think, was the best thing, because artist Lulu McDonald's installation is the suggestion of a summer garden, early in the morning or at the peak of the afternoon, when no one else is around and everything is quiet, when nothing in the world is stirring and even the crickets aren't chirping, and you can lay on your belly and come nose to nose with a blade of grass. They always evoke fondness and delight, and never disgust like many other insects, such as ticks and mosquitoes, often do. As is the tradition in Alplus Gallery, the only guide to the work is via a letter to the artist, written by Jens Sonred. These letters are always wonderful, lyrical, breezy, intimate musings on the artist's work. I had glanced over it when I walked in, and still had it in hand, but the actual work in the room pulled me into it right away. I wanted to applaud with joy, but what is the sound of one hand clapping? If I had walked into the gallery through the front door, I would have entered the garden through the gate and been greeted by two sculptures mounted on the wall to the right, Happy Hat, Sad Hat, the Malpumine and Thalia of gardening tragicomedy. Tall conical crowns and wide brims, one turned up like the lips of a smile, the other turned down like a frown. The heads they protect are ceramic pitchers, fashioned and painted to look like garden vegetables. They say you begin to resemble the things you love, and maybe this is what's happened here. You imagine the gardeners are happy digging into rich earth, touching and padding into place and fertilizing life cycles ad infinitum, and sad that this may be a luxury neither they nor we will get to enjoy much longer. In Buddhism, when you bring your hands together to pray, the left hand represents all living things not in a state of spiritual enlightenment, and the right hand represents Buddha. Placing both hands together represents a pose of a spiritual awakening and unity. On the wall directly opposite the front door, a yellow slow slug crawls up toward the ceiling, trying to escape. A trail of slime is proof of life, but this slug leaves no trail, no trace, ascending to the heavens and disappearing forever like Icarus. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Well, it depends on which hand. To me, the butterfly appears as something in between plant and animal. For that reason, maybe butterflies are better understood as signifying organisms or living images. Moving counterclockwise around the space, catty corner to the two emotional gardening hats, is a large snake. It's high up on the wall, slithering in the corner. A traditional wavy, undulating, two-dimensional snake. Its scales in the simple black and white of good and evil. Snakes are funny things. There is the first snake, the biblical snake of temptation, coiled in the tree of knowledge, the devil snake, but actually not the devil at all, but Lilith, the first woman. The woman before Eve, made of her own pile of dust. Lilith, who wanted to name the creatures too. Lilith, who sought knowledge and freedom. Lilith, punished for her autonomy with exile. And Lilith, who didn't care. 
Devil Woman. But snakes mean something else to me, too. Growing up in the tornado belt, my mother taught my brothers and me the signs of a coming storm, the charged air, the sudden silence, the absolute stillness, the sky turning a particular shade of green. We huddled in the basement once when I was very small, a funnel cloud dancing down our street. We could see the green sky through the cellar windows, and I was terrified. My older brother told me we would be safe. The green was the green of the underbelly of a giant snake that had wrapped itself around our house to keep us safe in the storm. Hours later, when we emerged, giant oaks had been strewn across our street, and the house opposite us had its roofing ripped off. But we were unscathed. Even our willow tree in the front yard was untouched. My brother was right. The snake high on the wall reminds me too of the 13th sign in astrology, Ophiuchus, the snake bearer, and more specifically, the snake, serpents. In Greek mythology, Ophiuchus had the power to resurrect the dead, which left Hades with an empty underworld. So Ophiuchus was sent into the sky as a constellation, where he couldn't do any more harm to God or man. He holds the head and tail of the snake serpents, also a symbol of regeneration in Greek mythology. It was a snake bite that killed Eurydice, sending Orpheus on his quest under the world, lower than the snake's belly, to bring her back to the living and be reunited with his better half, as they say. We all know how that worked out. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Unlike most signifiers, butterflies are not rigid or dogmatic at all. Instead, they are playful, flamboyant, and superficial. And in the middle of the gallery space, the butterfly, the one I was looking for, its wings at full extension, flat. An arrangement of flowers is perched on the butterfly's head. Normally, it's the insect who expires in the flowers, but this time, it's the flowers that will die here first. The butterfly is three-dimensional. It's about one and a half meters by one and a half meters, and it is purple, a feminine, childish purple. As I just learned recently in the city of Dresden, a city that knows a thing or two about the underworld and regeneration, purple is a uniquely, passionately divisive color. You either love it or you hate it. It's the color of royalty, the color of cat ladies, the color of richness, and the color of obsession. I wrote, in the poem I'm working on, that the color of change is a swirling violet hour of smoke and tears and small eternities. In the martial art that I practice, there is a technique called ogamidori. When someone stands in front of you and restrains both your wrists, you try to open your arms wide. What appears as a struggle to the aggressor is really the practitioner using tension against tension until it peaks into a point of stillness. When the moment is right, you clap your hands together, surprising your opponent with the movement and the sound, and opening your hands up again like a butterfly to drive your fingertips into their throat, their eyes, their vulnerability. That things are superficial does not mean that they are trivial or irrelevant. It only means that they are fragile, just like everything that truly matters. In Shinto Buddhism, it is customary to clap twice before worshipping at a shrine. This is to awaken the kami, the spirits that dwell there. The mode of clapping is to open your arms wide and bring them together again in a clap. This butterfly is all those shades of purple, sitting flat in the room, waiting for just the right moment to clap its wings and stir the air into a gentle breeze or a hurricane. I don't think the butterfly cares. 
There is a figure outside this garden tableau, at least as it seems to me. It wears a hat made of pussy willow pillows, and is constructed out of various ceramics molded to look like cabbages and fruit, the same species as the hat bearers on the wall, but fully formed this time, stacked into a tower slightly taller than the butterfly, standing independently, observing. A cantaloupe for a head, a bunch of grapes for a heart, a bright red pepper for whatever genitals vegetables have. It's as though this creature is the garden come to life, the full fruit of the two-headed gardeners, taking all the things that live lower than a snake's belly and making a new thing, a new life form, a kind of kudzu that can't be stopped, at least not by us, but that lives beyond us, way beyond our reach, even after we're long gone. In the martial art that I practice, they say the difference between life and death is the thickness of a piece of rice paper. The only origami form I have ever been able to make is a butterfly. What is the sound of one hand clapping? There is no sound, because you need two hands to clap. Lula McDonald lives and works in Hamburg, and her work can be seen online at cargocollective.com slash Lulu McDonald, L-U-L-U-M-A-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Her exhibit, Lower Than a Snake's Belly, at Alplus Gallery, Stromstrasse 38 in Berlin, opened on July 19th, but you can't see it because it's already gone. Music tracks used in this episode are karaoke tracks to Bobby Darin's song, Dream Lover. Excerpts from the letter to Lulu McDonald from Yen Sonered, read by Rasmus Kjellsrud. Artipus is produced in Berlin for Zynga Network, and you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify under Zynga Network. Just search for S-I-N-G-E Network. Artipus is also broadcast in France exclusively on World Radio Paris. WRP on your DAB dial. I'm Susie Colick, and you've been listening to Artipus, art you can hear. You've been listening to Artipus. Produced and edited in Berlin by Susie Kollek, with original theme music by Hotlegs, for the Zynga Network, S-I-N-G-E-Network.com. <laughs>